Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. This is episode 251. I'm Tessa, co-host on Chat with Traders. Happy New Year. Happy 2023, everyone. May you have a fruitful trading year and more. In this episode, Ian interviews Casper Vandeluk, a young and talented arbitrage and quant trader and programmer in the cryptocurrencies market. Casper received his first Bitcoin at 16 years old as payment for his programming skills. At the time, cryptocurrencies opportunities were emerging and he followed his strong instincts to drop out of high school to become a full-time trader and dive deep into learning everything he could about this fast-paced new type of finance and medium of exchange. He went on to write his own programs based on delta-neutral arbitrage and order flow strategies. I need to quickly point out that there are two parts to this interview. The first part is a recording we did with Casper before the collapse of the crypto market due to the downfall of FTX. Since the collapse, we did try to get Sam Bankman-Fried back on the show, but it couldn't happen. However, we also wanted to get Casper to come back on. The FTX fraud arrest of SBF and the subsequent collapse of the crypto market opened new opportunities for Casper as many players were forced to exit the market. So stay tuned for the second part, which is a shorter follow-up recording. Let's get on to the first part of the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you Casper Vandeluk. Casper, welcome to Chat with Traders. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and where are you now? Well, I was born in Tienen, then I traveled, well, traveled, not really, uh, I moved a lot uh, through Belgium, um, and I'm currently living in Brussels. Oh, great. And if you don't mind us asking, how old are you now? Uh, I'm now 22. 22. Okay. Well, get started early. Uh, yeah, definitely. How old were you when you first got your first crypto and through what medium? Um, well, it's quite easy to count because I'm from 2000. So in 2016, I... I was very into coding at a young age. And in 2016, I was doing a freelance job and someone wanted to pay me in Bitcoin. Um, at that time, you know, I've heard of Bitcoin. I originally wanted to mine it to earn some extra money as a teenager, but, you know, didn't really have the facilities for that. 
I got paid in Bitcoin and well, you know, I only had two options with it. It was either buy drugs or, you know, do do something else with it, like gambling, etc. And then I discovered this platform called Polonex, where you could buy alternative coins um, like Bitcoin, XRP, Ethereum, etc. Uh, against Bitcoin and basically it was like a mini stock market and I was like okay this is pretty cool because I was always interested in that but in Belgium it's very hard to get started on that we don't really have something like Robinhood as well at least not at the time uh, you need to be 18 at least have like 10,000 euros in your account which I definitely didn't have at that age um, and I basically started you know playing around with it you know i built up some capital from 2016 to 2018 with a crazy bull market even though that I had you know, a very small amount to begin with. And then in 2018, I dropped out to become, you know, a full-time trader. Did, did you have interest in any other type of financial markets? Um, did you follow financial news or were you just kind of thrust into it by receiving the crypto, thereby awakening your curiosity to it? Well, investing always had an interest to me because I knew that like, okay, saving doesn't really, you know, help that much to build up capital. So something like investing would be very interesting. And of course, at a young age, I saw the Wolf of Wall Street, etc. So, you know, you see a lot of people with a lot of money is always interesting as a young guy uh, that was broke. But uh, no, before that, I re- really didn't have like any experience. Like I, I looked, you know, sometimes at documentaries, etc. But it wasn't like... I had a big interest in it at all. Uh, that was also not really my start in the beginning. It was just more as a hobby. And I always wanted to go you know, further with what my passion was at the time, cybersecurity. But you know, that quickly changed uh, after 2016. I see. Um, did you have early goals uh, regarding crypto through the speculation of it or working other jobs and receiving crypto? Um, in the beginning, it was honestly more of an experiment. I did set certain goals for me to achieve by 30, which I prefer to keep private, but I've reached those already. So it's they were also not really realistic. I thought that I would never really hit them, but well, yeah, <laughs> apparently wow. I did. Well, congratulations for uh, uh, meeting your goals early. Mm-hmm. When you first got into crypto or the first few years, uh, did you share your early interest or goals related to crypto with family and friends family and friends well i did it because the the way that i got started is i at the time i had i think i received like 40 dollars. i put 20 dollars into the polonex account and i woke up the next day uh and i put it into a random coin and it basically doubled so that was to me quite surprising and i remember that i shared it with some friends at the time who obviously thought that it was like a Ponzi scheme and whatever. But yeah, in the beginning, I was quite verbal about it because it was very interesting to me that I you know, had access to a sort of casino where I could speculate on these coins. Um, but yeah, not, not that much after. I, later on, I kept it quite private to myself um, just because it, it wasn't really well received um, that you were you know, at a young age busy with cryptocurrency. What was the reaction of your family friends or even teachers uh, when you quit high school at uh, around the age of 18 to trade crypto full-time? Yeah. Uh, at 18, I, I dropped out full-time to do uh, At 18, I dropped out to do it full-time. I remember my dad, he, he act, reacted quite well to it. So I ran away at 16. So it's not like I had contact with my mom anymore, but um, I remember my last exams. I, I basically, instead of studying for business development that I uh, that I had, I made a presentation for my dad explaining that I was gonna you know drop out of high school 
and he didn't really have a choice. Like he either is going to have to support me with it and just accept that I'm going to do it or uh, that I'll be, you know, that I'll leave the house, uh, that I already found an apartment where I could stay, that I knew I could afford, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he basically was was quite, he, he accepted it quite well. Um, he even said to me like, yeah, I, I knew you were going to do this. But of course, I cannot really verbally support it that you drop out of high school. I'd rather have you finish it first and then drop out. But well, I cannot really stop you. When it came to my friends, they were kind of in disbelief. And I remember I, I told my teachers a few times that, you know, I'm just going to drop out. And, you know, they didn't really believe it. But then the day that I needed to get my last grades, they were in full disbelief when they wanted to wanted to register me uh, for another year that I said, like, no, it's not going to happen. I'm dropping out. Oh, wow. Uh, did you share with them um, some of your early successes in trading crypto? Um, there was a teacher from another school that I that I shared it with because he was also interested in economics. He was a math teacher, but you know he, he didn't see me at later stages and I didn't have contact with him anymore. Um, also, the teachers that I had the last year, I basically you know never shared what I exactly was doing. They, they knew that I was interested in crypto because sometimes during the lectures, I wasn't paying attention to them at all, especially during computer class. I was, you know, doing my own thing, which kind of bothered them. Um, but no, I never really shared it with them because, again, it, it, especially in 2017, 2018, even though it was in the media, it was still mostly seen as something used by criminals, terrorists, drug dealers, etc. Hmm, yes. So what makes crypto fascinating for you? I mean, what really grabs you about crypto? Well, in the beginning... In the beginning, especially 2016, 2017, there wasn't really much special about it. But the thing was that it's so open. You can easily get into crypto, uh, especially at the time. You could just create an account without doing any KYC. You could deposit a small amount of money and you get charged in percentages, not really in standard fees, which makes it att attractive for a young person like me. Um, and also the data is just so open compared to traditional markets. If you want something like order book data, et cetera, especially live data, you're going to have to pay thousands a month compared to crypto, where it's just like, okay, you have an account here, even though you have $10 or 20 bucks in your account, you can create an API key, request data, uh, and, you know, and just use that. It's very open and transparent. It, they don't treat you differently uh, because you're from a different country or whatever. Cryptocurrency just works like it should there's certain code that the codes gets executed and there's no regulation in between. Well, now it has, but you know, not back in the day. In your earlier years of trading, what type of cryptos did you buy? Buy, I mean, the, the biggest garbage out of all of them. Uh, I remember that I was trading one coin quite heavily called Sia coin, which was something that had to do with cloud storage. Um, so you could, instead of mining, you could, um, provide you know some storage to the network and then people would rent that storage from you on the decentralized network and i found it a quite interesting coin because back in the day you didn't really have stable coins or at least they weren't big so all markets were denominated in btc and this coin was so cheap so in the smallest unit of bitcoins or satoshis it was like 60 67 satoshis however the fees that you paid to take and make from the markets uh, were less than 1%. So for me, it was quite attractive to just constantly uh, place bid and ask on it and kind of do some some small market making, but manually to earn some extra money. I see. So you were more uh, 
you were more of a market maker slash short-term trader as opposed to kind of a buy and hold? Well, I did buy and hold, but I did a lot of experimenting. Um, yeah, no, I wouldn't really say that I was a that I was heavy busy with that. I was in short-term speculation. Uh, market making really wasn't the case yet in my earlier years. My knowledge about markets then was also very minimal. But yeah, back back then it was mostly short-term speculation, some long-term stuff. But the coins that I was trading at the time were, you know, many of them were garbage or even uh, outlined scams. But that was what got traded the most back then. So you know, I went where volume went. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, transition to the idea of the perception of crypto in the media. Frequently, we hear the media and some politicians and bankers frequently say that the media say that Bitcoin mining is consuming more energy than some nations, and that mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies as a whole are primarily used by criminals for money laundering. What's your response to this? When it comes to the electricity usage, um, I don't know the exact numbers that already you know heavily dropped uh, after Ethereum switched from proof of work to proof of stake. When it comes to Bitcoin mining, of course, it still uses a lot of electricity, but I do know that the people that uh, have mining facilities, they go to places where electricity is cheap or where there is too much electricity produced so that they you know can buy it for cheap uh, and, and mine Bitcoin for cheap. So I don't think they should only look at how much electricity get, gets consumed because of Bitcoin, but also at where the electricity is coming from. Because if it's at a place where they just have way too much energy and they cannot, you know, send it to another place, then you know it's quite logical that, you know, why not use it for uh, you know, for Bitcoin mining instead? When it comes to that cryptocurrency gets used by criminals, uh, that's definitely true. But you got to keep in mind that with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you can at least see that it's getting used by a crime. If, for example, a bank gets hacked or you know there, there's a malicious uh, transaction on your PayPal account, we as a public don't see that. When it comes to cryptocurrency, there's a public ledger. So if someone is verbally about the fact that, hey, you know this, uh, this money just got stolen from me, um, we can see that actually the money you know, got sent to a different address, uh, maybe linked that to another hacker, et cetera. Um, so it, you know, it definitely gets used uh, by criminals because it's fully permissionless. Uh, and, you know, it's not like uh, PayPal, for example, can just freeze your funds. But at least we can see, you know, that there is crime. Um, but it's not really appealing for uh, many criminals because you're leaving a trace behind uh, permanently with something like a PayPal account. If, you know, your PayPal account gets closed, that data is deleted or maybe PayPal still has a copy of that. But when it comes to cryptocurrency, let's say uh, that you steal some Ethereum from someone, uh, you are leaving a trace behind. Even though you are using a mixer or something like Tornado Cash, if that ever you know gets traced back to you, you're screwed. Yeah, so certainly um, cryptocurrency is not the best way to for criminals uh, to keep their transactions uh, private. And I've heard that the percentage of criminal activity using cryptocurrencies has been falling as a percentage of uh, total volume over the years. Uh, I'd like to dive into what is quantitative trading on the cryptocurrency market? Are you, you're a quant trader yourself, correct? Correct. Yeah, why would we consider quantitative trading over say traditional discretionary trading? Well, when it comes to quantitative trading, the easy thing that you have with cryptocurrency again is that the data is so open. You have easy access to uh, order book data, live trades, et cetera, that you do not have. Uh, on traditional markets. Um, shit, I forgot what question you asked. 
Oh, yeah, just, yeah, why should we consider quantitative trading over discretionary trading, the, the advantages? Um, you mentioned that in the crypto market. Is, is it easier to do um, quantitative trading on the crypto market than the traditional financial markets? Yes, it's definitely easier just because the data is so much more open than on the traditional markets. Um, something like the cryptocurrency markets, you can open an account at an exchange, request the API, and you know have full access to it uh, with certain limits, of course, but you have full access to the data compared to the traditional markets where you don't have that. I see. And did you program yourself? Yes. So before uh, I got into trading, I was very into, you know, just scripting as a kid, building small programs, etc. Um, so then in 2018, when I full, went full time as a trader, I was looking at ways to basically improve my improve myself. Uh, and the best way to do that in the beginning was to build tools for myself, uh, things like, you know, uh, different methods to enter a trade, analyze uh, my trading history, look at, you know, you know, try to build some kind of automated trading strategy in the beginning. I see. What kind of strategies uh, did you try? Well, back in the day, it was actually quite simple stuff like trend following, etc. That has now evolved to, you know, fully delta neutral strategies and um, strategies based on order flow. Mostly with order flow, it comes to trying to find trapped players. So players that got into a position uh, are now underwater and aren't in favorable conditions and then try to make use, use of that. So you tried different strategies. How often would you switch between strategies? It depends from time to time. Uh, some strategies were profitable back in the day. Now, you know, they aren't anymore. I remember in the very beginning, uh, it was on, on Binance, for example, you had so many different pairs like... Uh, BTC USDT, but also BTC Ethereum, Ethereum USDT. And between the, uh, those three pairs, even though it was on the same exchange, you could execute some try arbitrage. Now, basically what that meant was, uh, let's say buy Bitcoin then use that Bitcoin to buy Ethereum and then use that Ethereum to sell for Tether or USDT again for a small profit. Back in the day, that was still possible, but these days that's, you know, the, the competition has gotten too high. You have companies like Alameda, Wintermute, uh, jump that are now way faster and have a way better infrastructure than me uh, to do execute those trades. For example, now it's it's more order flow based or you know strategies that aren't latency sensitive. Uh huh. So okay. So you said you got into arbitrage. So what is arbitrage exactly? Is it just price differences on different exchanges that you're taking price, advantage of? Price differences between different exchanges or also just different trading pairs. So like Ethereum USDT, Ethereum BTC, and BTC USDT. You could use your USDT to buy BTC, then convert that to Ethereum, and then sell that Ethereum uh, on the Ethereum USDT for a higher price because there was a you know small difference between those. I see. And the higher price that you're selling it for, this is between different centralized exchanges, or are you also doing this on the decentralized exchanges? Um, I've never done it really on decentralized exchanges. I was quite late with the whole DeFi trend. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, especially in the early days, I, I did it on centralized exchanges. Uh, How often would you see these type of arbitrages come out to take advantage of it? Is it how frequently would you see it? Back in the early days, I can't quite remember, uh, but it definitely happened uh, multiple times a day that I saw it on different trading pairs. But the markets were, you know, then so inefficient that you could just arbitrage them out by hand. Um, especially bet- between different centralized exchanges. Most of the times you could just buy on one exchange and sell it on the other, and you could have minutes of delay 
uh, or at, you know not be the first one for minutes uh, and still be able to make a profit out of it. But oh, that wow. was again back in the day. Uh, these days, everything got, has gotten so much more efficient, and these types of strategies I don't run anymore because you know the competition has gotten real tough, and also the the infrastructure of decentralized exchanges has gotten so much better. Uh, it's honestly a, a whole different world now. I see. So these days, you don't do arbitrage um, too often, or um, not when it's latency sensitive. Um, the type of arbitrage that I still do these days is cross exchange funding arbitrage. Mm-hmm. So. A funding rate is basically a fee that shorters pay longs or longs pay pay shorters, depending if there is a premium or a discount on a perpetual contract. Now, this premium or discount um, is different on every single exchange, even though it is for the same instrument. So you could have one exchange like Binance, where you get paid to long Ethereum, and then you get paid to short Ethereum on an exchange like FTX. And what I will do is say if the reward is high enough, Long on one exchange, short on the other, and basically make the difference, uh, make it make a profit uh, on those funding payments, and then also when that spread closes. Could you describe for our listeners uh, what is a perpetual contract? A perpetual contract is like a future contract, but it doesn't it doesn't have an expiry. So to make sure that the contract is still the contract price is still close to the index price, so the actual price of, for example, Bitcoin what we have is a funding rate. This funding rate gets calculated by the average premium uh, on a certain um, time frame. So let's say that a funding rate gets paid every eight hours, like on Binance, it would look at uh, the time-weighted average price of that eight hours. And then if it's, for example, positive, uh, longers would pay shorts, that difference. And if it's a discount, shorters would pay longs. Why does this funding rate differ from exchange to exchange? And I mean, why does it even exist in the first place? How does that get well, created? Well, the, the difference in the, uh, it's quite simple. If there is a, you know, the index, there, it all depends on the index price. So this index price is different on every exchange. Why? Because it's a, it gets calculated in a different way. So for example, on Binance for BTC, USDT perpetuals, and they would say, okay, we're going to uh, give 50% weight to our, BTC, USDT spot market, and then 20% on UOB, 20% OKX, 10% on another exchange. While an exchange like FTX could say, oh, we're not going to do that. We're going to give a weight uh, to the Binance BTC USDT market for 20%, UOB uh, 20%, OKX 20%, and basically have a very different index calculation. And then there's also the thing where you know, different traders on different exchanges uh, maybe have a desire to create exposure to a specific coin, but cannot go to that other exchange or don't want to move their capital to that other exchange and then buy more aggressively or sell more aggressively. Uh, and because you have the different calculate, you know, the different calculation uh, on these index prices and also just you know, traders on different platforms act differently, uh, you get these funding rate differences. I see. So how long do you typically see these funding rate differences last for? Honestly, it really depends um, because some uh, sometimes it is you know just like one funding rate period, uh, but most of the time I try to ignore those. But sometimes it's also days or weeks, uh, especially in the bull market. You saw these extreme funding rates uh, sometimes last for for weeks, even though they were uh, tr- crazy fees, simply because there was so much demand and people wanted to use as much, uh, utilize as much leverage as possible. So it really depends from market to market. Sometimes it's, you know, one funding rate period, but, you know, those mostly get ignored. But if it's, uh, you know, if it lasts a day, uh, they they get noticed by everyone. 
Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So these uh, funding rate differences are created and amplified by uh, a lot of volume, transaction volume that helps push up prices. Uh, is, is that where the inefficiency comes in? Is it less during a really quiet market? It's yeah, it's definitely less in a way, uh, way more quiet market. It is always because of uh, some big events. So uh, currently, the the funding rates on on big coins like uh, Ethereum, like the, the 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 premium that you pay uh, on these funding rates aren't really that high. I would say like a two percent, three percent APR uh, last time that I checked. But on big bull market, it was sometimes fifty percent APR uh, that you were getting paid uh, in in a specific direction. Uh, sometimes even crazier. Uh, I think the peak of 2021 on Bybit, you got uh, you got paid two percent a day just to be short on Ethereum, which is absolutely nuts because a, a guy like me is just going to buy Ethereum, use that Ethereum to short Ethereum, and get a two percent, uh, you know, payout every day while actually having no risk. Wow, you say there's no risk because you're long. You you have no on. exposure to the uh-huh. underlying assets. So with the specific one that I'm talking about on, on Bybit now is um, I use Ethereum as collateral to short the Ethereum contract. So I'll, let's say that I had 1,000 Ethereum. I would short one. Uh, I would use that 1,000 Ethereum that I had in spot. Then use that as collateral to short Ethereum, the contract itself, and then I would bag the the payout. Uh, that Bybit would give me uh, simply for being short. But if it would go up in price, well, I, since I own the Ethereum, you know, I, I have no underlying exposure, I would be safe. If it goes down, well, you know, my Ethereum becomes less valuable, but because I'm in a short position, I'm fully hedged. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, you wrote an article uh, talking uh, last spring about receiving $309 a day for just one Bitcoin. Uh, and you're protected on the downside for, through this uh, delta neutral. How much has this funding rate changed over time? Because this this number equates to over 100% annualized payment. Yeah, but the, you know when it's a crazy rate like two percent, most of the time doesn't last for that long. You know, over time, like now, uh, rates have have normalized again. I I personally don't really know what they are at the moment. I haven't checked in a bit. Like no, I'm I'm now checking it on. Uh, on Bitcoin, for example, the best that I can get as we speak uh, is currently one BPS every eight hours, which isn't that special. But also, there isn't you know a lot of volatility currently on the Bitcoin markets. There hasn't been a big down move uh, or up move for a while. We've been going sideways for almost half a year, uh, so people aren't really you know aggressively betting. I see. So, what kind of strategies do you tend to favor during these times of quiet market activity? Um, the strategies that I currently favor is actually most of the time none. Uh, at the moment, I'm busy uh, building um, 
further down my my systems that I you know that I wanted to to scale out uh, or start experimenting with new strategies. And I'm basically just waiting on volatility. Now, these days, uh, at the time of this recording, we've received some volatility again, especially on the pairs like Ethereum. Uh, so I'm trying to, you know, play around that, but that's mostly directional order flow. But besides that, at the moment, you know, if, if markets aren't favorable, uh, then I'm not going to force myself to trade. And I rather sit back and, and just try to improve my systems or build out uh, current operations further. Have you heard of the kimchi premium? Yeah, I've definitely have. Uh, the Korean premium that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, Alameda Research are well known about. Um, you're talking about that one, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know what the percentages were, but back in 2017 on the Korean exchange uh, BitHump, I think, um, there was a sudden premium on Bitcoin of over 50%, if I'm not mistaken. And what Alameda Research back in a day uh, did was they, because it was so difficult to, you know, arm that out from a legal perspective. I cannot really remember what it was, but I thought that you couldn't uh, withdraw your Korean Wong um, to the USA or something like that. So what they did is they put people on a plane, uh, sent them to Korea, let them open an, a trading account there and basically by hand arbitrage it out. But I could be wrong there because it's been a while since I heard the story. But there was a wild 50% uh, spread, well, 50% premium in Korea that uh, that they arbed out. Wow. Uh, so I assume nowadays uh, the, these kind of premiums, they don't no longer exist. Has the markets become much more efficient? The markets definitely have become way more efficient thanks to stuff like stable coins, better uh, regulation, um, just overall also market makers now popping up in the space back in the day because volumes were extremely low. You know, uh, It wasn't interesting for a market maker to build out that infrastructure, and especially because exchanges uh, were very flawed. But uh, these days you don't really see wide premiums like that. If you want to see wild premiums, you would have to go to something like DeFi. But on DeFi, these premiums have gotten way lower, maybe 2% uh, these days on, on low low market coins, but uh, yeah, low, low caps. But uh, no, you, you really don't see them anymore these days. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten into DeFi? I've gotten into DeFi, but not from a quantitative perspective. I find, I've, well, no, I have, to be, I have to be correct there. I have gotten into it from the quantitative perspective, but not into stuff like, for example, liquidity providing. So you have automated market makers providing liquidity for them. Um, I've done that by hand, but not really in, a, in any quantitative or automated sense. What I have utilized, though, is um, on decentralized exchanges, you now also have perpetuals where you can, uh, again, with a def- cross-exchange funding arbitrage, you can uh, get some good trades. I've definitely uh, taken advantage of that. Uh, and I'm also now working together with a few DeFi protocols, advising them on, on how to improve their systems, et cetera. Oh, wow. What, what do you see are the biggest advantages and disadvantages of going through DeFi? Uh, when it comes to DeFi itself, uh, DeFi has advantages in the way that it's just open and free. So like the thing that I already liked about cryptocurrency that you easily get access to data, etc., that is only stronger in DeFi. There's no more, you know, there's not even private data anymore. Everything is public. You can request as much data as you want. You can send transactions, you know, you, you have no rate limits. 
like you have on, for example, a centralized exchange. So that is very nice. You have better, you know, you have alternative liquidity solutions. Um, so for example, with trading, you have AMMs, so automated market makers that they aren't really better, I would say, but, you know, it's a nice alternative to have. Um, and it's just better, you know, it's, how can I say this? It's easy to start a finance startup on DeFi compared to, you know, anything else in, in, in normal finance, because you can just start up a smart contract and, and start your own, you know, decentralized protocol uh, or decentralized application. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get involved with NFTs, um, any it, kind of trading strategies? With NFTs, um, I'm involved as an investor. I've, you know, taken a few positions. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say names oh, or not. Like. But, mm-hmm. um, for example, two NFT projects that I like is uh, Milady's and uh, Petit Penguins. Milady's, um, purely because it's, uh, both of these projects are profile picture uh, projects. But what I find interesting is both of them have a very good community. Miladies are more private parties type of situation, while Petit Penguins is more of a wholesome community that tries to help each other out. They also do some interesting stuff with IP licensing. So the penguin that you own, uh, they could utilize that to you know, have some kind of, how can I say this? How, what is it correctly? Um, so Petit Penguins, uh, what they do is they could, since the uh, intellectual property is yours, when it comes to Pudgy Penguins, you also have a wholesome community, but you own the full IP rights to the penguin that you own. However, what you're trying to do is enable that IP. So for example, try to get a licensing deal with you uh, to build real life products. So the guy that recently bought up the project uh, called Luca Nets, uh, he has a history with creating toys, uh, gel blasters specifically. What he's now trying to do is try to get IP licensing deals of your penguin to then make plushies with it and sell them to Target, Walmart, and other stores, which, you know, when I hear, heard that pitch in the beginning, I thought was kind of bullshit. Uh, but since he has this, you know, good history of already creating toys, one of the best-selling ones in America last year, uh, you know, it gives a lot of hope and makes it an interesting project. They also are now busy with storytelling, like an animated series, etc. Um and are you know trying to create really a unique uh, and interesting approach for trading NFTs itself? Uh, something that I've been looking at is trying to arbitrage them out. So since non fungible tokens, you know they're not like a Bitcoin. One Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. There's no difference between them. However, with NFTs, because you have one uh, item of a collection, it's not the same as the other one. It's for example with the example of penguins, it could be uh, the one has a crown, the other one doesn't. Uh, difference in skin or fur background colors of that picture, which causes some liquidity issues. However, now you have these automated market makers like NFTX, a pseudo swap, uh, et cetera, where you always have a bid and an ask. And sometimes these price differences get very big, especially compared to more centralized platforms like OpenSea and LuxRare, where you can execute an arbitrage, but it really, it can be really difficult because trading fees on these NFTs can be uh, very expensive. For our um, listeners, can you describe very briefly what are NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and how do they add value? Well, NFTs, what they are in, in short, is a sort of unique token, and that can be anything from a piece of art to a concert ticket um those are yeah the two prime examples um you've probably seen them before like a board api club or a crypto punk and how they add value 
really depends from the collection. If it's something like a profile picture, you most of the time get access to an exclusive community. It's kind of like a sign of wealth sometimes too, especially the board apes and the crypto punks. I think the cheapest one on, on both of them is at least six figures. Uh, so having a profile picture like that, you know, it's just a, sa- a status symbol, just like a Rolex. Um, the other utility that you have really depends from project to project. Some like the Miladies give you access to private parties, same with board apes. Some of them just give access to, you know, a group chat or, or, or part of a community, but it really depends. Um, but the most interesting part for me is just, you know, it's a, it's ownership. You get the NFT in your cryptocurrency wallet and everyone on the blockchain can see that you own that NFT. And it is from that specific contract address. It's not like, you know, uh, going back to the Rolex example, someone sees you with a Rolex, but is it a real Rolex? You don't really know. It can be a super clone, it can be a very good fake. You have no idea. But with cryptocurrency, you can see, okay, that is number, let's say 1,000 out of the 8,888. And we can all see on the blockchain that that exact that it is uh, from that specific collection that we are talking about. So we know that it isn't a fake. It's truly just ownership uh, in short. I'd like to move the conversation to talking about March of 2020, when the crypto and uh, financial markets had a big fall. The lunar and- crash. Yeah. And what happened briefly uh, in March of 2020 with crypto, other than the prices falling, uh, was there some issue with the crypto exchanges and have those issues been been solved now or most been improved upon? Um, the, the biggest issue at the time was, of course, the UST collapse. So there was this cryptocurrency project called Luna, which think of it as like an Ethereum competitor, but they also had a algorithmic stablecoin. What I mean by that, it's an algorithmic stablecoin. It's a stablecoin and the peg, so which is $1, is remained by an algorithm that was based on the uh, on the Luna blockchain. So if UST was below $1, they would use Luna in the treasury to sell for UST. And if UST was above $1, they would use Luna. Uh, they would use USD to buy Luna. But back in the day, what happened was that you know the peg difference got really big, and since it you know USD uh, was I think ninety six cents when it really started uh, going hard, you know they aggressively started to sell Luna to buy uh, USD. Now because there was a deep peg, no one wanted to buy Luna, so Luna got into a debt spiral. And USC never recovered. So many people, you know, lost all their money and a lot of exchanges had trouble keeping up because, you know, the, the trading that happened on Luna was so aggressive, which also, you know, brought down every other price. And well, yeah, that's in short what happened. Great. Uh, what is it like for you uh, setting up a quant fund as a young entrepreneur? What, um, what was the motivation for you to start in the first place? Well, for me, I actually originally just wanted to start a prop shop. So I had my own capital, was quite happy with it. And, you know, for me, it was, especially in big bull market, it was always a trade-off of either you trade, you build your systems, or you, you know, need to maintain your systems, uh, build it out to new exchanges, et cetera. But it was always a game of catch-up. So I was like, okay, I need to hire some new people. The moment that I uh, got a bit verbal about that in my friend circle, there was a certain financial institution that said, hey, I would li- we would like to create some cryptocurrency exposure and we would like to do that through you. you know, I thought that it was going to be a, you know, quite easy to do, uh, start up a fund uh, somewhere like Cayman uh, and then you know, raise some capital and call it a day. 
uh, burnt my fingers on that because the financial institution that I, you know, that I was in contact with is is very traditional. Um, you know, they they cannot just use Cayman, for example. They told me that they could only do it in a fund located in Luxembourg or Switzerland or something like that. They're pretty open-minded with that. And while that took at least a year to set up, uh, I think one year and three months in total. And after setting up, it became a problem because there was, um, uh, I'm sorry, my microphone disconnected. Do you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, shit. Sorry, my microphone just disconnected for a, for a bit. Um, no problem. The cable got pulled out. Great. Do, do yeah. you know? Do you know anyone else uh, running a quant fund in the crypto sphere? Oh no, there definitely are. You have mostly market makers, so more traditional delta neutral uh, strategies like Alameda Research, Wintermute, Nibio, Folkfang, and many others. Now you also have Sandcap. Uh, which is run by a friend of mine, you have many fold. There are many others, but there aren't many that do it in Luxembourg, which is quite unique, mostly, you know, because it, it's hard to set up there. It's very expensive. And just a legal headache that you have with them is, you know, since Luxembourg is slow-minded and they move slow, it's not something many want to deal with. So you hire uh, programmers to help you uh, build out your system. Is that correct? Yeah, I did hire one guy full time. His name is Munir. Basically, I picked him up right after college, uh, after university. He got a master's in AI and then uh, applied for the job with me. Mm -hmm. And besides that, I currently don't have anyone else, but we're looking to hire uh, someone who has more experience with DeFi pretty soon. Mm -hmm. uh, and also just another senior programmer to to speed up uh, our systems, because currently, you know, building out to newer exchanges takes a lot of time. Uh, in your article, you mentioned that you designed your system to be a microservice architecture. Uh, mm -hmm. What is this and what are the advantages? Think of it as like normal programs, how they work. It's like a stack built on top of each other. It is a one big robot that you build, uh, monolithic programs, it's called. The issue is, of course, with this one big robot is that if one part of the robot breaks, your whole system falls apart. And it can create a lot of issues. While what we're doing is we're building a small army uh, of, of all different kinds of robots. But if one robot uh, goes down, it doesn't mean that the whole system goes down. And the others can notice like, okay, there's one system that currently isn't operating. So we can spin up a new instance of it uh, that can replace it. Um, an example of this could be, let's, let's say uh, a risk engine. So I would have my terminal. Uh, I want to execute a specific trade as a human. I submit it uh, through my terminal. The terminal wants to go through the risk engine to our API to place a trade. But we notice that there is something wrong with the risk engine. It doesn't respond. There's an issue. You know, there, there's something wrong with it. In a normal program, you know, everything would just be stuck and you wouldn't know. What does it would, you know, it sees like, hey, there is no reaction. We spin up a new instance of it. We submit our transaction to the new instance, and then it would, you know, send it to the API and work just fine. Uh, and that's with every uh, small piece that we have uh, in our systems. I see. So this type of design is it uh, built to be more resilient, say during um, when exchanges uh, freeze up or anything, any problems that happens with the exchanges that's occurred in you know years in the past. Does this help protect you a little bit from that? Definitely, definitely. Because if there's like one error, we can spot it uh, more easily. And it's also very important for scalability. So 
let's say you know we have our current systems in place and you know most of it is written in python but let's say there's something you know very heavy to run uh which python is too slow for we could rewrite that um, microservice in a language like for example rust uh which is way faster but you know it takes uh, a longer time to write it in um, and we could basically replace it with that quite easily just like that spin up a new instance but then in rust uh, if we have developed it and replaced it and it would work just fine think of it as like uh, you know a, a, a piece of your car uh, if the engine isn't fast enough but you know back in the day it was we can now just replace it quite easily uh, so for your crypto fund are you targeting uh, individual or inst institutional investors uh, mostly well Technically, anyone uh, that is high net worth, but we definitely have a preference for institutionals because to onboard them, it's it's more easy. Uh, and also the minimum ticket size uh, in Luxembourg can sometimes be quite high for angels. Excuse the last interruption here. This is Tessa. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you love the podcast, please give Chat with Traders the best review you can on whatever platform you're listening from. This will help us to keep the episodes coming. Also, if you haven't subscribed to our email list, please hop on to chatwithtraders.com and click on subscribe so we can keep you posted of information that may be of importance. Thank you. Now back to the chat with our guests. Uh, how much new competition do you see entering the field or is it difficult to track? Um, it's quite difficult to track because quants like to keep a low-key profile and don't really, you know, shout it, uh, shout it out like, hey, we're starting a new quant fund. Um, but most of the competition that we see is more from the VC perspective. So early investors, seed investors, not really people that, uh, you know, actively trade or run liquid strategies. I think this also comes because of the attractive uh, period that we had in 2020, 2021, where VCs, you know, a lot of them just did pre investments, uh, and sometimes they went uh, up by 100, and sometimes they went bust. But VCs, you know, had a had an incredibly easy time. Then I've seen that uh, friends of mine, but also you know, uh, competitors are now attracted to that way more than running a traditional hedge fund. Mm hmm. Uh, so to effectively utilize your strategies, um, have you calculated roughly what is the maximum amount of money that you could manage and still be effective? We've noticed that if we if we keep it below 30 million, we're going to be fine um, with our current systems, but it's quite easy to scale that up because the, the issue that we have is just liquidity overall with, with the types of strategies that we run. Uh, since we are mostly directional, you know, it's we can manage quite a, a large sum in overall, but the liquidity, of course, on lower cap coins is you know very spread out. So for us, if we want to go above that thirty million mark, we're just going to have to you know connect to more exchanges and uh, perhaps also more OTC platforms. So where do you see yourself, or where would you like to see yourself in three to five years? It's a difficult question to answer because if you asked me that question three to five years ago, I would have said that I worked in cybersecurity. Um, <laughs> honestly, I would say kind of the same place where I am right now. Like uh, trading isn't really a thing that I that I'll quit soon. It's I've tried to quit it uh, in the earlier days or even uh, other periods, but I always get attracted back to it. So I will. I think that I will always, uh, you know, stay in this space. Uh, you know, running this this shop, especially for for Muska itself, it's you know it's something that I want to do long term. I want to do it for at least ten years, not leave anytime soon. 
uh, I want to scale it out, actually, not, you know, uh, scale it out as not only the fund, but also, you know, building something on top of that. Think of something like a Bloomberg terminal for cryptocurrency, uh, for centralized exchanges uh, and stuff like that, where my expertise is, you know, where I have some expertise. So, yeah, I would say that just further with, the you know, building out the fund, uh, advising projects. There are now a few projects that I'm, you know, that are going to be announced soon that I'll be advising. I'm very stoked for that. And honestly, I just want to, you know, stay on that path. Uh huh. Great. Uh, I had one question uh, regarding regulations, and mm -hmm. some say that uh, some kind of regulatory framework is necessary for big institutional money to get involved. Uh, what's mm -hmm. your take on that? Do you think we need some kind of regulation for the big money to come in? Regulation for the big money to come in? Well, it's it's hard to answer that question because you have regulation, you know, in the USA, you have that in the EU, etc. Uh, I don't really think you need more regulation because at the moment, the regulation is already pretty strong, uh, especially, you know, and now especially there's, you know, a lot of work going uh, around uh, Mikala, for example, in Europe, you have the USA, where Sam Bankman-Fried is, you know, pushing really hard for regulation. I think it's more of a liquidity issue. At the moment, liquidity has gotten way better in crypto, but it's not like you can, you know, execute a $100 million trade quite easily on the crypto markets. That's going to take days or at least have, you know, a big market impact on even coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think it's more of a liquidity issue and an and overall uh, adoption slash interest issue than regulation. Mm -hmm. I'd like to move to uh, mindset and psychology. Uh, mm -hmm. And is the mindset different for a discretionary trader versus an algo trader? Definitely. Well, for me, at least, um, because when I was a discretionary trader, I had like a more, how can I say, a long-term view around uh, trading strategies. Well, now as an algorithmic trader, like I, because I'm so into the data, I try to optimize every small part of it. But as a discretionary trader, what I did was I placed one single limit order or I placed one uh, market order or whatever. And that now has become to, okay, how do I, for example, optimize my uh, my entry. And it's not only the type of orders that I'm going to use, but also which exchange am I going to use it? Uh, you know, which exchange am I going to execute it on? Back in the day when I was a discretionary trader, uh, what I did was I want to trade a 1000 Ethereum long. I go to the exchange that I use and I execute a 1000 Ethereum long. These days it's very different. I have my own terminal. I type in, I want to create exposure to 1000 Ethereum. And it's going to look at, okay, where do I have money on which exchanges, which at which exchange do I have the best um, rate, so to say, to enter this trade based on prices, liquidity, uh, maybe things like funding rates, uh, et cetera. And then it's going to ex execute that trade, but not only on one exchange, but most likely on multiple different exchanges all at once. And with a discretionary trader, you know, for me, it was, I did a lot of uh, manual work. With now an as an algorithmic trader, it has really changed to, you know, since I now have way more time because I automated a lot of my workflow, that I'm spending more time optimizing my systems uh, or, or building them further out than actually, you know, trading itself. So what do you struggle with most and how do you deal with it? Struggling with most is decide where I'm going to invest my time and resources to. Um, because cryptocurrency grows so incredibly fast and, you know, you... You can you know, have the mentality of like, okay, I have this one thing that's now very popular and very cool that I want to expand to, but that may be not be interesting in you know, tomorrow or next week or next month. 
so it's constantly a, a decision of like, okay, am I gonna spend more time building out to this new exchange? Uh, am I gonna learn more DeFi related stuff on this specific chain? Or am I gonna learn options? Um, it's really where you're just gonna invest your resources, both time and money-wise, um, because the space just moves so incredibly quick. Right, there's more things to learn than, uh, than you have time for. Yeah, and uh, it's it, it it's too much for everyone because there's just so much new stuff going on. Um, the the last in you know, Arbitrum, for example, uh, is getting very popular, which is like thing, uh, which is a new chain. Well, not a new chain, but well, whatever. It's it's a new uh, ecosystem. Basically, you now also have new memes, uh, which sound very strange to say, but coins like Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, etc., are very big, and now you have Doge Chain, which are getting a lot of traction. It's like okay. Is it worth to spend your time on that or not? You're going to have to invest some time in it, uh, perhaps, because it's going to get big, or maybe it's just a fad that lasts for another week. But at the same time, you have, I don't know, a new decentralized application that's coming out that's maybe interesting because it's a new derivatives exchange where inefficiencies are created. It could be uh, something NFT related that can be interesting. Uh, maybe a new fraud or a new scam got invented. Maybe you got to spend time on cybersecurity. It's just so much. You know, and and even if you have a team, it's it's a pain in the ass to keep up with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how did you get? How did you quickly get to where you're at at your age? Did you have mentors? I didn't. Well, I didn't really have mentors. I just ha- because all the resources are on the internet. It's you know something that fully got invented on the internet. Um, you know, you you have all the resources, but I I learned a lot through social media which sounds strange to say, but through platforms like Twitter, private Discord chats, et cetera, where you meet people that are into the same stuff as you, you know, you you talk about it and you build together and you experiment together and you teach each other stuff. And that's, you know, the the thing that enabled me to to learn quickly. Also, just the, the thing is about crypto is not only is data so open, but also the the founders of these protocols or exchanges are very open. Uh, so a lot of the times I can exchange like FTX back in the day, uh, when they launched, I had some questions about how they designed their liquidation engine because it was so different than anything else that was in the space. I would just DM the CEO, who is now incredibly big, but at the time he wasn't. And I just DM'd him a question saying like, hey, I don't really get this part or like, why did you design it this way and not design it this way? And I would just get a response. So I don't know just fucking around and finding out. Mm. Yeah, you uh, those early days you felt like you were part of a community, right? No, no, now these days too, like uh especially around DeFi, everything is very open. Uh with DeFi protocols, you can just join the Discord, you can ask questions and you have people that are paid full time to just, you know, answer your questions or even the community is just going to answer uh what you're asking for or send you a link where there's further documentation. Uh which cryptocurrency cryptocurrencies who really feel part of a community i don't know how it is on on platforms like tiktok etc i don't think it's you know really <laughs> i don't think it's going really well over there but on platforms like twitter everyone is very open like even big traders that are running way bigger firms than me are just very open to talk about stuff um some i don't know how to pronounce his name correctly some tobacco i think but everyone calls him tabasco uh was the ceo of, of alameda research and for a while, he would just post his analysis after doing the trades publicly on Twitter for everyone to read. And these were very valuable. And you can just, they're still up. You can still go there and read them. 
Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, what kind of sacrifices have you had to make in order to trade and be an entrepreneur? Have you sacrificed on sleep, um, time with family, I, and friends? I, I don't know how you, in, in Dutch it's called Klausenach. So basically like locking myself up for multiple years. So when I dropped out of high school, you know, all my friends were still at high school. They were studying, later they went to university and I locked myself up into my parents' bedroom. Later on, I did move to a rework office uh, before starting the fund. And then after a year, you know, I, I got Munir, but, you know, I, I just locked myself up. And, you know, as a psychopath, I was trying stuff out, building stuff out, reading, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, whatever I could to, you know, keep up with the space and try to earn a living out of it. Because, um, you know, I don't come from a lot of money. So for me, it, you know, it was either get obsessed with it and master it as fast as possible to, you know, try and make it or, you know, basically lose it all uh, as in a time investment that I would not make it and could not make it my full-time job and would have to work as a cashier or whatever. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you end up having any free time to do anything else for relaxation? Um, in 2021, uh, when I started launching the fund, uh, because the legal, the legal work was going to take, originally it was going to take three to four months, but I got screwed over by my legal team. So it took over a year. Uh, but when I, when I started setting up the fund, I decided to, you know, spend three months just hanging out with friends, etc., meeting them, eating out, etc. But, um, I don't really regret it or, or anything like that. I really enjoy my life at the moment. I see, you know, many different kinds of people every week. I eat very good food. I have a comfortable living, so I cannot really complain. Um, great, great. Sounds like you're living the life, living the dream. Well, some say that. I personally don't think so, but well. Yeah. So in closing, what would you say to those risk-tolerant equity investors who are curious but scared of getting into crypto? Take 100 bucks, experiment with DeFi, experiment on centralized exchanges, learn as much as possible. If you're, you know, if you're young and you don't have the money to experiment, I mean like, you know, 10 bucks on the Solana, uh, the Solana ecosystem, for example, uh, send me a DM on Twitter uh, and I'll send you five bucks Solana where you can experiment with. Honestly, I would just say experiment with it, play around uh, compared to what it does to traditional finance join communities, ask questions. Um, it's it's such an open space. And, you know, you're not really going to lose anything uh, except the money that you, well, except the money that you put in, of course. Uh, you could always lose that, but just play around with it. That's that's what I would say. It's, it's very open. It's very transparent. And there are a lot of resources out there. Great. Thanks for coming on the show, Casper. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. If listeners are interested in getting in touch with you, what is the best way to reach you? My Twitter is at Casper Look. So Casper with a K and an L-O-O-C-K. Uh, I also have a LinkedIn. And if I'm not mistaken, Chat with Traders is also launching a platform where I can communicate with them. Yes, we're launching a community. So, well, I'll, uh, I'll make an account on there and uh, they can also reach me on there. Fantastic. Stay tuned for the follow-up interview coming up right now. So everyone, we're having this part two interview with Casper uh, just five weeks after the first one due to the extraordinary events that has recently rocked the crypto world. Uh, Last time we spoke, Bitcoin was around 20,000 and Ethereum was near 1,600. And just a week later, 
prices had fallen 20 to 30% due to the collapse of the centralized exchange, FTX, run by the infamous Sam Bankman-Fried. Some are calling this the Lehman Brothers event for crypto. Casper, uh, how have you been during these difficult times? Um, I've been pretty all right. I did have some significant exposure to FTX, but overall I'm doing well. Did you have a an account with FTX or... Yeah, I, I did have an account with FTX. Uh, I've been with them since the day that they launched. Uh, I really liked their product. And uh, well, I was personally hit with my personal assets. Uh, I did move off uh, a lot of my acti- activity over the last few months since I had some issues with the exchange. But uh, yeah, it's it's sad to see a player like that go, but it's also you know eye-opening to see what, what kind of business that they were running. Yeah. Can you describe for us what were the reasons for the collapse of FTX and its impacts on cryptos, NFTs, borrowing and lending, and decentralized finance? So in short, what happened was you had FTX decentralized exchange, but Sam Bankman-Fried also had his own trading company called Alameda Research. And Alameda Research apparently went bust. And to cover that, what they did was they used customer assets to trade with their prop shop called Alameda Research. Uh, and that didn't really go too well. And they lended a, a lot of money to fill the hole on their balance sheet uh, of FTX with their own token. So they were taking out loans against FTT, the FTX native token, against MAPS, against Oxy, against Serum which were all very illiquid tokens and where they held the majority of the assets of. And a big exchange called Binance discovered that and the CEO noticed this and decided to sell uh, his shares of the FTT token, which caused the price to collapse and well, all the lenders uh, asking for their money back and FTX couldn't provide that money because they lended it all out to their to their you know, trading firm, which also lost all the money. Uh, so there was basically a bank run. My understanding of FTX as a centralized exchange is regulated, right? Yeah, they were regulated. Uh, you had FTX US and you had FTX.com. However, you know there were some malpractices going on and it wasn't really a good oversight. And you know, SBF was also one of the, the bigger sponsors. Politicians in the USA uh, was really you know trying to push some bills so everyone was trusting him on, you know, on that end, while it wasn't really in check. They didn't even have a CFO, apparently. So after the FTX collapse here about a, almost a month ago, what were its impacts on cryptocurrencies, NFTs, borrowing and lending, and decentralized finance? Well, borrowing and lending was already in a pretty bad state because there was uncollateralized lending was uh, really popular. But after the Luna crash, because of players like Three Arrows Capital, uh, you know, the industry wasn't already doing well because a lot of people realized like, hey, a lot of these companies don't have their risks in, uh, in check. So there, you know, nothing major changed like some uh, companies did go bust that had uh, some loans open because they had a significant exposure to FTX. But to the crypto market itself, the, the you know the market pretty much nuked. Overall, there was you know 20, 30% downturn on, on most coins. 
Um, but coins that Alameda was heavily invested in uh, or was active in had it really tough. Coins like Solana went from $30 to $9. Now it's currently back at $15. Uh, their native token called FTT went from $30 to, I think, $1.5 right now. Uh, tokens like Serum went from 2 3 bucks to, I think, $0.20 cents at the moment. Uh, and that's still really high. Um, Serum is their decentralized exchange token. So think of it as like a centralized order book on the blockchain, which was pretty you know new back then on the Solana ecosystem. That project has now been forked uh, because a lot of the players that are building on that project realized that you know Alameda was only doing them more harm than good, uh, and are now you know trying to build an alternative. Mm-hmm. What about the big? Uh, decentralized players like uh, Uniswap, for example, uh, were they uh, impacted significantly by this decline? Or did uh, some people argue that most of decentralized finance uh, continued to work reasonably well despite the collapse of centralized player FTX? Decentralized players were, you know, were thriving uh, at that moment because everyone was looking for alternatives and, you know, especially decentralized alternatives since they, you know, a lot of people had trust issues now with centralized exchanges. So players like Uniswap, uh, GMX, Bird Protocols, Zeta Markets, etc. were all doing really well because of this. Uh, you can now also see that centralized players are feeling the heat and uh, are feeling forced to show proof of reserves. So proof that they actually have all the assets that they claim they have uh, on the exchange itself. But uh, you know, decentralized players are you know, benefiting greatly from this. And you can also see that in volume. Uh, have any of the strategies uh, you have been using uh, been impacted? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, FTX was one of the exchanges that I had implemented into my systems, and I really liked using FTX. It had a a very clear UI. It had some very unique aspects like the non-USD collateral system. So you could use coins like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others uh, to trade certain uh, assets with a certain float. So if I call correctly, if you had uh, $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, it was calculated as 95 thousand dollars that you could use as collateral to trade perpetuals and that was something really nice uh, especially for hedging etc it you know it was it was a big deal to me Uh, their funding rate system was also very interesting most exchanges pay out a funding rate every eight hours ftx did it every hour uh, and well they just had a very simple and clean uh, api and user interface they were also one of the few exchanges that supports fixed api which is important to market makers that's something that i use personally but a lot of my friends are missing that you know on ftx and other exchanges that's a shame that uh, all this happened uh so are there any other centralized players uh that come close to uh, making up for the collapse of ftx uh, can you do your strategies uh through binance for example yeah, I, I mean, most of my strategies I can run on other exchanges. I've personally integrated with four other exchanges, and I've now integrated Coinbase too. Um, you know, to make up for the you know for what I'm uh, missing at FTX. But you can definitely run uh, these strategies on other exchanges too. But it's you know, you're you're definitely missing one of your uh, major key components in your systems. Especially, I like to use FTX for directional trading because you had that oh. Uh, hourly funding rate. Liquidity wasn't always too great on FTX, but it was a very good user experience. 
and I had very low fees there. I had a good connection with the team. So if I had ever any issues, I just contacted them directly, which is not something that I have with every exchange. I have it with Binance. I have it with Bybit. But exchanges like Coinbase, they demand a lot more volume uh, every month before you can get a, to a level like that. In the last month, have other have many other players left the space, creating potentially more opportunity or less opportunity for you? Uh, for me personally, uh, there's a lot more opportunity at the moment since Alameda was one of you know, the biggest players in this space uh, and also a bad player uh, in a lot of ways, which so is now removed. There are a lot of trading firms you know, that are down or, or simply close to uh, their doors. Uh, there are now rumors going about Amber Group. The CEO recently died uh, that they aren't paying their workers and that the seniors are you know, missing. So uh, there's now definitely uh, a gap uh, for traders like me, which I'll definitely take advantage of. Have you experimented with any new strategies uh, since the last time we talked? Or are your um, the strategies that you have been using, um, you're saying they're creating more opportunity now because of the, the exit of some players? Um, I'm not really running any new strategies. I've simply, you know, first two weeks after at the FTX uh, stuff happened, my focus was simply, okay, what is currently going on with FTX? Uh, is there any chance that I will be, that I will be getting my money back? Quickly realized that wasn't the case. Uh, removed FTX from my systems. Uh, checked if there were, you know, any errors caused because of it. Uh, to see later on if there's another exchange that is having issues uh, the same way that FTX uh, caused it. Will that you know interfere with my systems? Wasn't really the case. Um, besides that, I've been busy you know developing some stuff uh, and looking at some new arbitrage opportunities, but I haven't executed them. I think I'll be doing some live tests uh, the eighth of December, but I still have to wait a little bit for getting some more data. Leverage has been a big topic uh, in the crypto uh, uh, crypto universe. Mm-hmm. How often do you use leverage in your strategies? Leverage to me, I use it if I don't have enough collateral on a specific exchange, but I have it somewhere else. So let's say I want to create a long position on Qcoin, but I only have 100k there, but I want to create a 200k position. I don't mind using uh, 2x leverage to enter that position and then move uh, 100k capital from, let's say, Binance to Qcoin. But for a lot of players, they simply use leverage to you know get naked into a position uh, to create more exposure. Besides that, a lot of people use it to limit their exposure to a, a specific centralized exchange. So in the case of, let's say, FTX, I knew a lot of my friends only had 10% of their capital there, even though that it was their main exchange. And then they simply used 10x leverage to you know, trade that, that specific asset that they wanted to do uh, while having their you know, counterparty risk limited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh so there's been a lot of horrifically negative sentiment in the news today, in recent days and weeks regarding crypto. Uh, mm-hmm. Last week, the European Central Bank said that crypto is on the road to irrelevance because Bitcoin is rarely used for legal transactions. Its impending regulation is misunderstood as approval and its promotion bears reputation risk for banks. Uh, Bitcoin transactions are cumbersome, slow, expensive, and have never been used for any significant extent for legal world transactions. Any thoughts on that statement? Why, why do you think they are, want to make that statement if it's on the road to irrelevance? 
Uh, I find it strange that they make that statement because I have a few friends that work at uh, the European government uh, and work at uh, some financial companies there. And what they're telling me is that, uh, for example, central bank uh, and some financial institutions uh, from the government are giving out DeFi lessons, uh, so how to work with decentralized finance. Uh, and that you know that they're looking for a lot of crypto native people at the moment. Uh, I know that they're trying to improve their laws by 2023, uh, which I think is going to be late, be delayed to 2024. Um, there was recently also a new law that they wanted to implement around stable coins. Uh, that you know you're limited to. There was it was something related to like USD stable coins versus Euro stable coins, but I can't really re- uh, remember what it exactly was. And when it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin still gets used for for you know legit transactions. Um, the thing is, you simply if you see a transaction on the blockchain, you know it's very hard to know if it's you know for a legal use case or illegal use case unless you know one of these addresses that is you know related to a specific crime. I personally use Bitcoin to to pay for stuff sometimes, like gift cards, etc. Or if I have to pay, you know, for something online in general, uh, because my credit card is acting up because it's you know from a it's a strange country that I'm buying something from, even though it's just a an, an online subscription or whatever. For me, cryptocurrency is overall easier to use. Uh, for Bitcoin itself, it's hard to really say because I don't really use Bitcoin that much anymore. I'm more of an Ethereum and Solana guy because it's faster and you know you can interact with smart contracts etc but it uh, the statement doesn't really make sense but it's also logical that you're going to talk uh, badly about a competitor like that do you think that it's uh, much better to talk about the specifics the pros and cons of each type of cryptocurrency instead of just lumping it all into one basket it's it's kind of difficult to, to say because i i'm really pro crypto but on the other hand if i was in their shoes um and I would have to address the public, the average show. I would not advise the average show to get into crypto simply because there are so many scams and you know so much can go wrong. And it's more for you know for tech native people uh, to get into, or for you know, investors that are looking you know to really speculate on certain markets. So if I were in their shoes, you know maybe I would also make a statement like that, not really saying that it's you know fully irrelevant, but you know give more, you know, warning signs, try to get people to stay away from it unless they really know what they're doing. Uh, but saying that it's irrelevant, you know, isn't really a, a valid a valid opinion if you're giving out DeFi lessons, et cetera, and are looking for crypto native people to work for you. That means that it's definitely here to stay. Um, I don't know, it's the, the banks make so many strange statements all the time, and I, I didn't really follow it up over the last few weeks. Uh, what they exactly said, so it's hard to give an opinion about it. Some people are saying that uh, there's some talk on the regulatory front that exchanges would make users past pass a test before they could enter DeFi, so that they have basic understanding of the risks that are potential in DeFi. Would you support that kind of uh, regulation? Depends on how far it goes. There, I think. I don't really know how to how they want to implement it. Like, do they want to implement it in the in the user interface of a website? Like, let's say that I have to go to Uniswap, that I have to fill in a quiz before I can actually use the protocol. I find that you know a little bit hard to implement since you know how are you going to check if this person already did a test? Are you going to link it to a certain wallet? But then you have to you know somewhere store that information. Are you going to log it by IP address? 
you know, there are so many questions around it that I find pretty difficult. Uh, I would rather not see it happening, but I wouldn't be surprised if it would, because you already have it uh, with some cases like uh, futures tradings and perpetuals trading. If you go to Binance and you create an account there, uh, before you can trade futures, you have to fill in a quiz. Uh, so I wouldn't find it strange if certain, you know, protocols, if you use their user interface online, like GMX, would actually ask you like, hey, this is how our systems work. Do you are you aware of that? What the risks are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would find that kind of logical, but on the other hand, it's a decentralized protocol, so you cannot really, you know, there aren't really any laws when it comes to you know crypto itself. I, I think it's very hard to implement, uh, especially because are you going to do it in user interface? But if someone forks that interface and then just removes that quiz, how are you going to stop it? It's kind of like saying we're going to, you know, force you to do a quiz before you can use a cryptocurrency wallet. It's all open source. So someone can just fork it and remove it without an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so turning to sentiment uh, right now, there's so much negative sentiment uh, regarding crypto uh, and some prominent um, people in the investment field uh, are saying, you know, sell all your crypto. Uh, for example, uh, James Kramer, uh, the head of uh, CNBC. Yeah is saying sell all your crypto and uh recently we had a front cover article on the economist saying um you know uh the downfall of crypto do you ever look at contrarian indicators like this as possible early indicators of we're getting near the bottom well if you look at uh, jim kramer his tweets and you put them on the bitcoin chart uh, then it always does the exact opposite of what he says uh, is going to happen. So I'm very happy that he is bearish on uh, cryptocurrencies, and I hope he remains like that uh, for a couple of years. When it comes to The Economist, uh, the downfall of crypto, everything that has happened is actually just an indication that you know, there is actually need for, for crypto, because cryptocurrency is all about decentralization, transparency, uh, and being open. The reason that we use centralized exchanges is just because the liquidity currently on the centralized exchanges is pretty bad. Uh, it's pretty slow. And there are some privacy concerns when it comes to you know a wallet address. You can look into it. You can see what kind of positions it has, open orders, et cetera, on a decentralized exchange. However, on a centralized exchange, you don't really have that case. However, you do lack all you know the, the, the aspect of uh, of, you know, it, it's a centralized party. You don't really know where your money gets placed. This is, you know, just a sign that we actually need to work more on decentralized exchanges and, you know, bring those really forward. And, you know, I think it's it, it only shows that we really need uh, crypto more than ever. Uh, saying that it's a downfall of crypto, I think is a very, you know, bad sentence to say. I would say it's a downfall of SBF uh, more than anything. Given the blowups that we've seen with FTX, Celsius, Voyager, and others, uh, how do we improve the crypto ecosystem to increase stability and trust in the centralized and or decentralized exchanges? Well, when it comes to centralized exchanges, I think uh, stuff like proof of reserves and just you know having a good auditor, uh, maybe having multiple auditing firms that are doing regular checkups uh, would be something nice to see. FTX apparently did do audits, um, but only once a year. Uh, and there were, you know, higher ups that could tamper, uh, you know, apparently SBF had some kind of uh, backdoor into the accounting system um, that the CTO Gary uh, made for him. So, you know, 
that is, is, is fairly hard to spot. But I think if we have uh, more regular audits from multiple accounting firms, that would be something very nice. Having stuff like proof of reserves would be very important. And when it comes to players like Celsius and Voyager, the suspicious thing about these players is that you don't really know where the yield is coming from. They were promising yields of 10 to 20% on stable coins, which is utterly insane. And you know, people didn't know where it was coming from, apparently from big players like Three Arrows Capital. But I think if you provide some kind of yield on a centralized exchange, I think it's very important that you know who your counterparties are. Uh, with players, you know, like Binance, et cetera, if you want to lend out your money. You know who the counterparty is. It's another trader that has collateral on Binance uh, and will get liquidated if he's not able to pay that back. However, with players like Celsius and Voyager, you simply don't know who that is. Uh, and it's very hard to calculate your risk if you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's been some positive movement toward uh, um, releasing proof of reserves. But the critics argue that well, what about the proof of liabilities? Because unless you know what the liabilities are, that um, showing your proof of reserves is is only half the picture. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with that. But when I, when we're talking about proof of reserves, I just mean like the the assets, you know, the assets that they they have and the, the liabilities. Of course, as as you you know, is what they owe to users, etc. But I personally don't know how they're going to approach this problem. I personally haven't you know been too deep into it yet on how they could actually like build a solid system around that. Um, so I cannot really go further into that. What are your thoughts about whether we need a decentralized algorithmic stablecoin, such as an alternative option to the centralized government influence stablecoins like USDC and USDT? Uh, supposedly Aave is designing a, a stablecoin called Go. Uh, that's algorithmic. What are your thoughts on all of that? Um, I try to avoid algorithmic stablecoins as much as possible. I mean, we've had some tries in the past. It's true that Aave and Curve are both now building uh, some kind of stablecoin, but I they released some kind of light paper, but I haven't really, you know, dig too deeply into it. Um, but I personally don't really have an issue with uh, centralized stablecoins as we have it right now. I think coins like BUSD, USDC from Circle, USDT from Tether, you know, they're working fine as is. Uh, you already have some kind of uh, algorithmic stablecoins that are working, like DAI uh, has been a very strong consistent, uh, contestant. You also have UXD, which is a stablecoin on Solana that I find very interesting. So what they're doing is create a stable coin, but it's backed by delta neutral positions. So they would go long Ethereum somewhere and short it somewhere else, um, do a potentially cross-funded arbitrage or something like that. And those positions would then be the collateral for uh, those stable coins. But when it comes to the curve stable coin and the Aave stable coin, I haven't read the documents yet. In in Europe, uh, do they have certain disclosure requirements regarding the use of leverage? You know, when and how much and to what degree? Um, it depends. I'm limited to my usage in Luxembourg, but how it is with me is in, in my uh, offering document, I stated how I exactly use leverage. I go into you know the, the types of strategies that I use, how I use them, the, the risks that are involved. Um, I personally just put the risks uh, of everything to the max um, because I didn't want to you know fiddle around with how riskful is it really. I just put the risk on, on, on the highest. I explained how I use leverage. And when it comes to uh, 
you know, providing proof that I actually have these assets. I have to go to my CPA every quarter to do a NAF calculation. And they go over every single order, every single transfer, every single payment I have done, uh, you know, individually uh, to actually do these calculations. And then they, um, you know, make up the final document that I can send to, you know, my investors saying if, you know, if their share prices are up or not. Uh, I don't really know how it works in, you know, in, in places like Cayman, et cetera. So it's hard to form an opinion on that. Uh, my system is at least very transparent. And, you know, that's that's a good thing, especially now, uh, since a lot of players didn't care about that two months ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I, I personally don't know uh, how, how it would be in other jurisdictions. I see. Great. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with the listeners? If you have any other questions um, about the FTX stuff, about me, uh, or just want to have a chat, you can contact me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Kasperlook, which is K-A-S-P-E-R-L-O-O-C-K, or you can contact me via the Chat with Traders community. Fantastic. Great having you on for a uh, part two uh, catch up, Casper. Thank you. Great. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.